Welcome once again to another episode of Demand Gen Radio, the one program that brings you all the latest methods and technologies for driving growth and increasing demand. With the voice of Demand Gen, David Lewis. All right, well, thank you everybody for tuning in to another episode of Demand Gen Radio. Today on the program, I have invited Henry Shook. And if you don't know Henry, I think by the end of this podcast, A, you're going to know a lot about Henry, but you're going to find some incredible lessons from him as a first-time CEO. And uh, Henry and I got connected through me reaching out and trying to find some interesting people for the podcast. Uh, Henry's the CEO and founder of Discover.org, and they provide data solutions for the marketing and sales industry. But the reason I asked Henry onto the program was not so much about Discover.org, although I'm sure we'll get there, but for his incredible background story. Uh, I'll let him tell it, but just to set things up, Henry started Discover.org when he was 23 years old, and that was in 2007. Well, guess what else was happening in 2007? I was starting DemandGen. I wasn't 23 years old. I was about 17 years older, I think in my early 40s, 41 around there. And I certainly had a lot of career experiences to draw upon as I was starting the company. But Henry didn't have as many. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be great to hear his story and what it might be like at 23 to have launched not only Discover.org, but today a very successful, high-growth company. So Henry, thank you for joining me on the program. I can't wait to get this going. Yeah, thanks a lot, Dave. I'm excited to be here. So what was it like? I mean, let's start there. I mean, just how did you, you know, tell me a little bit of the backstory of, of where the company came to be. But what I really want to hear is how you felt as a first-time CEO, you know, at that age. And the reason I say at that age, I mean, you're obviously a smart, successful, accomplished person. But let's be honest, at 23, you, you have less knowledge and experience, um, you know, not as many failures under your belt to draw upon and certainly not as, as many successes to replicate. So I'm just curious to hear kind of how that felt. Yeah, uh, you were a $150 million ARR business today. And so when I think if you're looking back at the start of this business, it's easy to think like we were starting this large enterprise, right? Like we were starting this large company, um, but we weren't, right? When we were starting the business, we were just starting something that we were hoping would uh, sort of pay our, pay our bills and give us something fun to do that had some growth potential. Yeah. And, and so we didn't have these, you know, if you told us we were going to be doing $150 million in revenue in 10 years, um, we would have no way of telling you how we would get from where we were at the time to that. Uh, but that's a, well, that's a lesson right there, which is I think so many people, when they think about starting a company, they feel like they have to have it all figured out and have that business plan all mapped out. You certainly want goals, but I'm right there with you that when I started DemandGen, I didn't know we would be, by the way, we're not 150 million, so kudos, but I didn't know that we would even be the size that we are today and have the success and have been in Inc. 500 magazine. You know, I, I had no idea necessarily what kind of um, successes we'd have from it, but I know my purpose. I knew my mission of what I wanted to do, and that's what set us uh, in motion. It sounds the same uh, for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of the, you know, all of those things, being an Inc. magazine, being a really fast-growing company, those were all really cool things that you aspired to be, 
but I don't think we ever expected to be um, until we got close to those. So when the business started growing and you see your way to the Inc. 500 list, you're like, okay, let's get on the Inc. 500 list. But when you're starting the company, you didn't really, Im- I didn't, we didn't really imagine the possibilities. One of the the big benefits that I had is even though I was 20, I was 23 and I didn't have a lot of career experiences to draw on. I did have one really big one, uh, which was when I was, um, when I just finished my freshman year in college at the university of Nevada, Las Vegas, I was dead broke. I sold my PlayStation on eBay for $300 so I could make the first month of rent, um, out of the dorms. And I applied to jobs all over the Las Vegas Valley and I got a call back from this little uh, two-person startup in Henderson, Nevada called iProfile. And I went in and I interviewed for what was basically an admin job and um, went in and got the job. It paid $12 an hour, and so I was pretty excited to take it. And it turned out iProfile was in the data business, and they were selling B2B data to sales and marketers at technology companies. And at the time, it was a $300,000 a year company. And over the next five years while I was there, we grew it from 300000 in revenue to close to $5 million in revenue. But even through that, through that revenue growth, the company size didn't really grow. And so what was a two-person company when I started at 300000 in revenue was about a five-person company when I left with $5 million in revenue. And so it was, a, it was a great business in the sense that it was growing and it was extremely profitable, but we weren't investing back in the business. Right. And I didn't see a path to building a real functioning company there. And so I went to law school, uh, and in my, at the end of my first year, uh, my business partner gave me a call and said, he was just my friend at the time, obviously, and said, hey, I want to start a business that's like I profile, but doesn't directly compete, but I don't really have any idea how to do that. Do you, will you do it with me? And I was, it was, I had three weeks of finals that I was looking, looking at. And I was like, nope, I'm not interested in doing that. Uh, but if you're really interested in starting this business, call me in three weeks mm-hmm. and I'll give you some, some general guidance to starting it. And he called me in three weeks I'm, and I, he said, look, even if you're just helping me part-time, I want to be 50-50 partners. And I pushed all my law school classes to the evening. He moved out to Columbus, Ohio, and we started collecting data and cleansing data and building a platform and launched the company towards the, towards the end of 2007 and and that was the start of it. It's um, it's a great entrepreneur's story. I mean, I think you, by nature, have an entrepreneur's background, right? I mean, when you were in Las Vegas, uh, we talked once about how you ran a promotions company, and you and I found out we had a little similar background. We've got hustle in us, right? So when I was in yeah. college and I was a DJ, if you remember, I wanted you know people to come to the club where I was playing music. And then I said to the club owner, I'm like, hey, is it cool if I invite like my fraternity brothers and people around campus. And he's like, is it cool? I'll, I'll actually incentivize you. And I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, you know, I'll pay you a percentage of the door for all the people that you generate. And so we were just hitting the beaches in Southern California, getting people to go there. And you were doing the same thing in, in Las Vegas, uh, which, you know, 
we're going to get, let's come back to this because I want to still talk about the company getting off the ground. But the most successful people I continue to find, whether it's among our clientele, CEOs, or just mentors of mine, they have the hustle. They're willing to work hard. And, and there's just, you know, there's nothing that comes necessarily easy in life. And if it does, you certainly don't learn much from it. Um, I read a book once. I wish I could say what book it was. I can't remember because I just read a lot. But it was all about different CEO profiles. And it really revealed that there are different types of CEOs and some that are you know, very confident, some that doubt themselves, some that are afraid that they're going to get discovered one day, that they don't know what they're doing. Would you be willing to share for me and for everyone listening in to this private conversation, right, it facetiously, what did it, what did it feel like confidence-wise starting the company and meeting with investors and, and being a first-time CEO of a company that's now, I get it, like you knew that you had to scale this, that it wasn't going to work with a couple people and you wanted to build a big business. What did that feel like? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for me, especially early on, I always felt like I was playing a shell game. Like that at, at some point, someone was going to figure out uh, that the company was a, like a mess internally. We hadn't figured out how to do marketing. We hadn't figured out how to do sales. We were just like hustling to collect data and cleanse it and get it in front of people. And I remember we were in, it had to be 2011. We were the fourth fastest growing company uh, in the Oregon, Southwest Washington area. And I remember meeting other CEOs who were on that list and meeting them and thinking, wow, your company must, your company's growing so fast. It's a big company. It must be so awesome to be you. But at the same time, thinking like every day I'm going into Discover Org and just playing whack-a-mole. <laughs> like that was, that's what I felt like that was my job. And for some reason, I thought that every other successful growing company was just sort of like hitting all the buttons right and there were no problems in their company and everything was just going great. But I was running this company that, you know, was struggling to get off of a, of a blacklist because we were too aggressive in sending marketing materials, was struggling to figure out what a, a salesperson's profile looked like um, that I was still doing sales at even when we were at, you know, 15, 16 million in, in ARR. I thought all of those things were like, really weird black eyes on Discover Org. And I didn't appreciate the fact that regardless of how big you are and how successful you are, there is a problem brewing somewhere in your company. And there might be multiple problems and fires brewing somewhere in your company. And you, like your problems don't make you unique. They make you similar right. to other growing successful companies. And so because I had this like weird mentality, um, it wasn't until like really recently that I started to feel actual pride in what we had built at Discover Org. And, and until then, I just felt like um, you sort of felt like you were coming in every day hustling as hard as you could. And that was the reason why the business was being successful. And you sort of undercut all of the other things that made the company great. I mean, even today, if we have 4,000 clients and 80,000 users across the globe. I'll go meet, you know, handfuls of customers on, on different business trips. I'll read reviews that say like, you know, your database 
and you're in the data and discover org is second to none or I landed a major client because of the data and discover org. And it's almost as though I don't hear any positive feedback. Like I'm really only hearing, looking for or hearing negative feedback. So if you tell me like discover org is the greatest thing out there, I just think like in my head, okay, you know, great. You know, tell me what you don't like about it. Um, that's a, let me pause you there. That's, that's a skill of a leader, right? I mean, you never have your heels on the ground. And when you get accolades and kudos and probably have won growth awards and that type of stuff, you're feeling, okay, but we're still not doing this. I mean, you heard, I think everybody heard your mindset, which was, I'm playing whack-a-mole, which is, you're never satisfied. I'm thinking of the song, you know, from Hamilton, right? That mindset of, I can never do enough, never fast enough, never achieve enough, uh, and, and pushing yourself to, to do that. And so that's how every day looks to you as a land of opportunity of things that you need to improve or scale and, and grow. And that growth mindset is what's contributing to the, you know, the growth of the company. Did you always, did you always have this confidence though? You know, when you were meeting with, you know, going out and, and raising money, and they were, you know, sizing you up because that is why they're investing, right? It's not really yeah. the company and the idea, but they're investing in, in Henry. Did you always have this confidence that you'd be able to figure it all out? No, no. And, and I think that um, most of the time, and, and I think there's actually this weird thing that happens, I think, in just American society to, to people who start their own business or entrepreneurs. And I'm sure it's happened to you, Dave. But when you started Demand Gen and it started to become successful and more successful and more successful, um, because when this happened to me, what people, your friends or others who haven't started their own business, what they ask you is what you're going to do next. So what are you going to do after Discover Org? So what are you going to do after Discover Org? So what are you going to do after Discover Org? And when you meet people and they have like a, a job and they work for somebody, you don't ask them like, hey, so what are you going to do after like you leave your job. But for some reason, like at least with my friends, or I think like with the broader society, because I get asked this question a lot, they just think you start a business and then at some point you sell it off and you, you ride into the sunset. Totally. And, I get that question all the time. And I, I always give them the answer, which is I never built the company to sell it. Like I didn't have a goal of we're going to build something and then sell it. My goal is to make this the greatest place that my employees and my team has ever worked. That's not goal number one. And my goal is to make marketing heroes. And I don't, they're kind of big, hairy, audacious goals in that you're never actually like check done. And I just keep doing that. And, and since I love doing what I'm doing, I, I have no plan to reach a final destination. And it, it kind of dumbfounds people because I think, as you said, they think, oh, you're building this to sell it, or you're building this for some external or next thing, and not at all. This, this, is, this is my thing. It defines yep. me. Yep. And I think it, when people say that to you, and you're young, and you ha- you're not as like, enlightened as you, know, you are at you know, when you're 40, 41, and you start the company, you just think that like, that's just the way it works. And then you start reading, you know, I was reading articles about, you know, professional CEOs that come in and how venture capital firms and private equity firms invest in companies. And then they bring in, you know, the gray haired CEO to come run the company and how that's good for businesses. And so when we were first meeting with investors, they would ask me like, Hey, what do you want it? What do you want to do? What do you want? What do you see yourself doing at Discover Org? 
And instead of saying like what I believed, which was like, hey, look, I'm smart. I'm hardworking. I understand this business in and out. I've done it for you at that point. You know, I've done it for eight, nine years. Um, I had a great experience that I profile in a similar space. So I know what businesses like this need. And I'm going to run this thing. Instead of saying that, I just sort of took a step back and was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like whatever you guys think, you know, I'm pretty good at marketing. So like I could do marketing or, you know, I can, I can be involved on the product side. And the signal that sent to everybody was like, okay, Henry's not really in it anymore and we need to bring in a, our own CEO. But I also sort of, for whatever reason, thought like, you know, I'm just going to be like really open to whatever they think. And if they think that uh, I would make a great CEO, they'll just, they'll just tell me that um, and keep me in the role. And so I, for our first sort of, we were lucky enough that um, we didn't meet with the best investors the first couple times around. And so we ended up not taking the offer that they gave us. But in the interim, in the interim, I got, we, we actually, when we raised funding, the first time we actually raised funding where, you know, we signed on the dotted line, we actually used the banker. And the banker was the first one to tell me like, no, Henry, like they're going to want to know that you're in this thing. Yeah. They're going to want to know that you're the CEO that, uh, that's going to lead this company. And they want to know all the things that you feel like deep inside that you're going to run this company successfully and that you're smart and agile and willing to learn. Like all those things that you are are what they look for in a CEO anyway. So don't run away from that. Like embrace it. Well, do you remember why you think you were telling that? Did you think, I need to tell them this because to get their money, if they think that I'm not the right guy, then I'll tell them that, so just kind of lob that out there? Or were you saying this because of, of self-doubt, like I'm not sure if I'm the guy to run the company or, or some other reason? Why do you think, do you think back, why do you think that was offered up by you? I think it was a little bit of both. I think, the first, I think you know, part of me felt like um, if, they, if they thought they wanted to bring in a CEO, I didn't want to make that difficult for them because we wanted their money, right? So if you want to give us money and bring in your own CEO, like I'm not going to be a stick in the mud about it was first. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think second, like, but, but I don't ever get there unless I don't feel co confident in myself as the CEO who could run this to the next phase. And especially because every day, like as the company's growing, like every day is a different type of company. And so the company we were in 2011 was different than the company we were in 2012 and 2013 and 2014. And that also meant that my role had to change. And so I couldn't tell you with 100% conviction in 2011 that I was going to be the perfect CEO for the company in 2014 because it was hard to understand the dynamics of what the company would be in 2014. Yeah. What I could tell you was I was going to work my tail off. I was going to learn as much as I could. I was going to take advice and counsel from smart people around me, and I wasn't going to shut those things off. I was going to let them like marinate and think about how to do things better and differently in the company. Um, and then I would be totally committed to success. Um, and I think those are the things you sort of, you, you, you absolutely are, are non-negotiables for, for, for a successful CEO. Um, and then I think, the piece that you don't get with me or with any sort of founder CEO is you don't get like a playbook that I've run somewhere else. And so 
I don't have a playbook to tell you like, hey, we're at 10 million today. And I ran this exact play at my last company, which grew us to 30 million. And then I ran a play at 30 million that grew us to 60 million. I don't have a playbook. I'm sort of figuring it out as I go along. But smart investors just bring in senior management underneath your CEO to support you and help you craft that game plan. And one of the things our investors did was they brought in a world-class CFO. And so right after, the acquisi- right after they made the acquisition of Discover Org, they helped me find a really great CFO who brought, brought a playbook. And it was just sort of like really simple things that, uh, that made huge impacts in the business that we just didn't appreciate before. Like here's a, just a, like a really easy example. We weren't um, – although we realized our clients see the most value in our product sort of at month 18, uh, we weren't signing them up for multi-year agreements. Mm -hmm. And so our CFO came in and said, hey, look, we know that our clients are seeing the biggest ROI in our product right around the 18-month mark. Why don't we just incentivize all the sales team to sell multi-year agreements? And we'll build like kickers on two-year and three-year contracts, and we'll give them room to negotiate price to get those. Because once they get past 18 months, Henry, they stay with you forever. So let's get them in a two-year agreement, and then we know they'll be customers for years and years and years after that. And, you know, it's just little things. Like, it was like a little epiphany. It's like, oh, huh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I'm like living and breathing this business, but because I don't have a playbook, it might take me a long time to figure that out. Yeah. I think to your point that like a CFO – or COO, Greg Carver's our, our COO. He's our chief operations officer. And he's come in and, like you said, brought playbooks from running much larger companies than DemandGen that, you know, make it, I'm not going to say easy, because that would be insulting to Greg and all the hard work. But what I mean is he knows the recipe for success. The hard part is actually implementing the recipe. But, you know, certain things we did, for example, when we started the, the business, we whatever we invoiced is what we recognized as revenue. And when we got to a certain point, uh, and, and like you say, brought in, you know, parental guidance, if you will, or someone just had a lot more experience on the finance side, said, well, no, you, you got to deal with deferred revenue, because if you haven't done the work, you really can't recognize the revenue. So we had to change our accounting systems. And that you know, I do a whole podcast on why that's important, actually. But um, to your point, however, I think in certain functions and areas, I think it's great to have youth. I think it's great to have people who, you know, there's there's no boundaries to uh, things the way that they see the world. There's no limits. Yep. Um, because, you know, the, the person who runs a taxi cab company didn't think of Uber, if you will, yep. right? And so there's um, a website that I encourage people to check out that I was thinking about when you were um, talking about your company life cycle. And so just search Google for company life cycle, and you'll find a guy by the name of like Adesis or Adesis. I can't remember his name and the reason I don't spend time because I know it's that easy to look up. Just look company life cycle. And you'll see this curve that Henry's talking about. And then, you know, there's the idea, the infant, the toddler stage, which was the idea of the business that Henry had. And then as it goes along and grows and grows, there gets to this point at a certain stage where they're at what they call adolescent. Uh, and that's where you get caught in the founder's trap. And that's where the, the founder of the company had a vision and sees what the company should achieve. And only some founders 
can go beyond that and get the company into this prime state that he'll call it. And it's that prime state when you're really cooking as a company. And if you don't get there, then the company can can go away and die. In fact, I just found out about another consulting company that went out of business in the last week or so. And you know, I, I think their CEO, from what I heard, didn't prepare them for the changes in the marketplace, which is what you talked about, which is whatever CEO and leader you are today, that is insufficient for, let's call it either a year or two years from now, that we have to be honing our skills. And, you know, anybody listening to the program, right, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a title to be a leader. You can be any function in any company. In fact, you know, Jeremy on last uh, podcast, Jeremy Bloom was talking about how he wants to really have the flattest organization possible at Integrate because everybody's empowered to lead and take action and not have to look for approval and, you know, uh, from, from that. So your company's been growing successfully. What do you think has led to that? I mean, how have you scaled your marketing and sales so successful? Because I'm sure the products evolved. I mean, from day one, you guys were always committed. I think it was your mantra, like we're going to have the, you know, the best, highest quality data uh, in the market. That's been your, that's been your light post. But how did you scale? Um, Sure, the products evolved, but what's changed probably most in your org is your sales and marketing. I'm guessing, you know, hold me accountable to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Sales and marketing is, you know, finance uh, as sophisticated significantly, um, but the way we go to market has, you know, changed pretty dramatically. I think um, I remember I was responsible. I've always been responsible for the sales organization, and in 2011, we had two salespeople and myself, and our closest competitor was a company called Rain King. And I remember looking up how many salespeople they had. It was just a random afternoon. And it was like 15 or 20 salespeople. And here I was trying to compete with these guys with, with four people um, or three people, myself, myself and two others, so three people. And, and I remember being in this moment driving, I think I was driving home and thinking, man, I have completely failed at my responsibility to build a sales team. And whether it's that I haven't gotten my co-founder to agree to let me hire four more people, or I haven't uh, been able to find the right people to put in the seats, or I haven't been able to train the people that I had hired and let go, whatever it was, like my job was to run a successful sales team that sold Discover Org, and me, my competitor has 15 people doing it, and I've got three. Um, and this actually ended up being uh, about two days before I left, uh, I left for three weeks to get married in 2011. And on my way back to, on my way back to the office uh, from lunch on the day before I left, uh, I left for my wedding, um, we had a, a young guy, he was probably 20, four years old, came to the office. He had a resume in hand and he said, Hey, I've read about discover org. I love what you guys are doing here. Um, I have no experience in sales. I was a professional poker player and the federal government recently made playing poker online illegal. And, but I know I want to be in sales and I'm smart and I'm hungry and I know I want to be in sales. Uh, and you know, he's in a suit and we were, you know, maybe a 10 or 11 person company. And I said, okay, well, you know, you sound really interesting. I'm leaving for three weeks. So why don't you come back in a week, meet my co-founder. And if everything goes well, 
when I'm back in three weeks, we'll, we'll bring you on board. So that guy is now our chief revenue officer and he manages all, you know, a 50, a 50 plus person sales team an 80 plus person customer success team at discover org. He's the ultimate person who's responsible for, uh, for our revenue. And he, and he sort of grew in the company from being a great salesperson to bring a great, um, sales manager to being a great sales VP. And then we put him in, in charge of our retention business as well. And then a, like a, a week after that, uh, our best salesperson stumbled into our office as well. He said, Hey, I'm same thing. I'm looking for a job. I've done commercial real estate. I'd love to work at discover org. And, um, we hired him and he's gone on to be our number one sales producer every year since. And the thing that I realized most about that hire was it made me significantly better Mm -hmm. because at the, at that point I was discover org sales, person. I was the best salesperson at Discover Org. And then this guy came in and he had like techniques and he always asked the hard questions and always got the follow-up and wasn't shy to tell people how great of a product Discover Org was. And I remember sitting down the hall from him and thinking to myself, he's better at those things than me, but I'm going to force myself to do all of those un- uncomfortable things that he does naturally. I'm just going to, I'm going to do from now on because I can't be the CEO down the hall who can't even ask the hard questions that my best salesperson is asking. Uh, and so he made everybody around him better. And so it was so nice to bring salespeople in after those two, those two guys were in because you knew you had this core group of really talented salespeople that everybody could learn from. And I think that that's probably been one of the really unique things about Discover Org even today is that the people around you are hardworking and smart and really good at their craft Mm -hmm. and constantly getting better. And people want to be around those types of people um, so that they can learn and and get better and, and, and move up in the company as well. You you want a culture of winners? That's for sure. Um, yeah. In the new book that I'm working on, uh, have a whole section about the team, and you know I've seen this. You know you can create lots of different cultures, and there's cultures within the culture, right? Every department has its own kind of little micro culture, but if you create a culture of high performance and a culture of winning then you not only attract a certain person, but you retain a certain person and you push out people who don't want to be part of that kind of an environment. And it raises and lifts uh, the company. So kudos to you guys for doing that. Kudos to you. I mean, you're probably still always going to be the best or one of the best salesperson in the company because you can tell the stories and the value prop always exceptionally well. But it is very difficult to scale sales uh, in an organization, any organization, um, and so for you to find some people and, and maybe whose resumes didn't necessarily, uh, you, you wouldn't have found them through a recruiter, right? But they found yeah. you and you gave them a shot because they hustle and uh, have shown their their value and their worth. Um, let's talk about a big deal or two that you've done. And what I mean by that is raising money for the company. And I'm sure through your journey of raising money, you've had uh, you've met with you know anything from private equity firms to what have you. And they've they valued you and assessed you. Uh, what have you learned through those experiences? That's a great question. So I've been, you know, I've 
been in we've been institutionally backed by private equity since 2014. And so uh, between that round of financing and um, we recently took on another uh, minority shareholder in uh, the Carlisle Group, between those two, you know, I've probably talked to and interacted with, I would say probably close, close to 100 different investors. And I'll tell you, the biggest thing I've, I've learned is they're sort of focused on the most obvious things, right? You have to have, you have to have a great product that has a large total addressable market mm-hmm. for them to be interested in. You have to be growing and you have to be profitable and, and you have to be retaining your customers, especially at scale. So one of the things that, you know, we became really good at sales and so the company was growing, you know, 100% a year, but as the company continued to grow, we weren't watching sort of the back door. Mm-hmm. And so we were filling new customers in without focusing on servicing the customers in a way that, uh, that kept them with us. And so one of the things our, our, our investors told us sort of right away was, look, you got to keep your eye on this thing because as the company gets bigger, retention becomes the more important piece of the business. And, you know, the worst thing you can have happen is have a really great product and then miss on the execution of customer success and renewal and have that be a window into your product. Because an investor doesn't know your business. And so if they see a, like a retention problem, their assumption is going to be the product is not good. Because the, if the product was good or great or as good as they tell us it is, then their customers would be sticking around at a higher rate. Right. And so the worst thing you can do for the value of your business is fail to execute on the retention side of the house and have that be an indicator of your product, especially if it's not, right? If you're executing perfectly on customer success and renewal uh, and your retention rates are, are, are bad, then you know, that tells you something about the product. If you have a great product that people love and then you're failing on executing, investors are going to think you have a bad product. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the reasons that, and I'm going to echo it again, you know, on the podcast and all my advice with our clients, you know, I say the lower funnel. And yes, marketing has to be responsible for customer acquisition, but we also should be focused. And I mean focused with resources, committed. They do nothing else than customer expansion and loyalty. Um, you take a look at hospitality. You know, we talked about Las Vegas, right? you know, B2C does this better than B2B typically, is they really understand that the first dollar that you get from a customer isn't the last. And there's far more dollars beyond that if you focus on it. If you have a frictionless customer experience, which is a podcast that I did with Don Peppers way back. You know, if you have um, more value to provide, don't wait for your customers to discover the additional value. Bring it forward to them in customer success and training and engagement. Um, Have conferences, you know, provide content to make sure that they're onboarded successfully and not just oriented with your product, but onboarded. And put marketing people responsible for this so that they don't have to take away from their quote, day job of generating net new leads and net new business for the company, but have focused. And, you know, if you're a marketer and you're wondering what's next in your career and you really want to make a dent in revenue, 
think about marketing to the customer base that you already have and yep. carving yourself out a role there because it's incredibly valuable to the company and it's it's often neglected. Totally. We actually just went through a process where you know, we had all of these different areas around the company that were focused on the things that we knew drove customer renewal. And so we knew if, you're, if our customers integrated with their CRM or marketing automation tool, we would retain them at a higher rate. We knew that if we did a private training and an onboarding, which got 90% of the users activated within the first week, that those customers renewed at a higher rate. And then we also had this customer marketing org that was focused on sort of driving people to the trainings, driving people to the content, driving people to get their systems integrated. So you had this customer marketing group that sat in marketing. We had this training and onboarding group that sat actually in the finance org. And then we had this integrations team that sat in the revenue group, in the customer success group. It was like, well, we're all trying to accomplish the same thing here, which is do the things that are not asking for the renewal that affect the renewal. And they shouldn't be in three different groups around the company. We need to bring it under one one roof and have that group be focused on the metrics and uh, the measurements that we need to be focused on that drive those things that we know drive renewal rate. And so, yeah, and that is the key group at Discover Org. Like the future of the company depends on our ability to increase our renewal rate over time. And having a group that's strictly focused on that is incredibly valuable and um and I think is valuable at any company that's scaling. Yeah. So you just picture a, a colander, you know, the uh, whatever you drain pasta in. And if you try to fill that thing up with water and there's a lot of holes in it, you, you never can do it. And if you plug the holes, which is attrition, um, you'll, you'll keep filling it and you'll need a bigger one someday, which you've done, which I don't know if you mentioned this, but didn't you end up buying... Rain King, the competitor that you mentioned with the 50 salespeople or 15? Yeah, we, we ended up buying Rain King in uh, the summer of 2017. Smart. Um, I got one last question for you before we wrap up. Uh, it's now 11 years since you started the company. Imagine you could teleport back in a machine and find Henry and say, Henry, I got something that I want to tell you because you need to know this 11 years from now. Um, I, want to, I want to share a lesson with you or something that you're going to worry about that you don't need to. What do you say to yourself? That's a great question. 11 years ago. See, I'd be afraid to tell myself. But the, Let me tell you the first thing that came into my mind. The first thing that came into my mind was, let me tell myself uh, to not lack the confidence that I need to be a great CEO. Let me tell myself that the investors don't know everything and that, uh, if, that I am good enough to be the CEO of a $150 million company and especially a $20 and $30 million company. But a part of me worries a little bit that if I had told myself that 11 years ago, then maybe I wouldn't have had that chip on my shoulder for the years that I needed to have it. And maybe I wouldn't have had the fire in my belly to prove everybody wrong. Mm -hmm. So maybe, I, you know, as much as that might have, like, helped me, I probably don't tell myself that. Um, so there's a little something special with not knowing your future and not knowing everything and, and having to get there through the way that you did. 
Yes, I think I probably just tell myself to be healthier. Like yeah, exercise yeah. more, make time for it. I know it sounds stupid, but like uh, take some time to be a little bit selfish along the way. Are you going to do that next weekend or sometime soon? <laughs> do you need me to hold I, you accountable to that? I am more selfish today uh, than I've been in the past. Um, but it, But there are moments, like I was with my wife this weekend and I was like, uh, I have to, be, I have to be getting in. I have to get in earlier. I have to spend more time with the sales team. Um, I've got to spend more time with marketing there. You know, there are these pangs of guilt that come with it. Uh, but I think along the way, carving out time to be selfish is, is the right medium and long-term decision. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to check in on you and I'm going to hold you accountable to that and see how you're how you're doing there up in Portland, Oregon, and making sure that you're finding time for yourself. I will try to be honest with my answers. All right. Love it. Uh, Henry, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I'll let you get back to doing just that, helping sales, helping marketing, and continue to grow a very successful company. Kudos to you. I hope you take time and do every once in a while, pat yourself on the back and the team. I know that I have a problem there that I don't ever feel that I've achieved enough, enough success. It's probably a, a topic for another podcast, but it pushes me and drives me, and uh, and I and I I'm okay with that. I just know that it's a little obsessive. But um, thank you, and hey, thanks everybody for tuning into the program. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and the podcast before this one with Jeremy. It's been nice to have a couple other CEOs on the program for me to talk with, and I hope there's some great lessons there. Maybe one of you wants to be an entrepreneur like Henry. Maybe you're looking about growing or expanding your company and getting some ideas from this. Maybe you've always wondered if you have what it takes to be a C-level executive. And you know what? You probably do. So have the confidence. Great lessons from Henry. Enjoyed you guys tuning in. Definitely love to hear from you. So if you can, drop me a note on LinkedIn about the program and be sure to pass on the word. If you're enjoying the content, let some others know. That's going to do it for this episode. Take care. You've been listening to Demand Gen Radio, bringing you the top industry experts, thought leaders, authors, marketing technology firms, and senior marketing leaders from around the world to teach you the methods and technologies for high-performance marketing. 